My God, brother Colton, sister Jessica. Dude, I missed that handshake, bro. I, 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 I didn't know there. what happened there. I feel like I want to do it again, bro. Like, yeah, just run it back, bro. It's, as a black man, like missing handshakes is not great. I don't know what it is for you, but did you feel that? I felt really bad. Okay, one more time, bro. Amazing, amazing. Thank, I just, I couldn't continue this sermon. And I, I love the way he leaned in too. He didn't go up high. He came like chest level. I felt that. So I'm glad you guys are watching. And thanks for people who came to the, the taping of this uh, service. Uh, it's helpful to not preach to a glory cloud. I mean, I think God listens to me, but um, uh, it's always nice to have people in the room. But I'm just so glad you guys are engaging online. What I love most about our online campus is how faithful you guys are. We never have like fluctuating numbers. It's pretty much the same every single week. Um, it's never really super inflated. It's never really super low. It's pretty consistent within 100 or 200 people every week. So people are being faithful, and I just think it's awesome. Um, anytime a church member is faithful and they're doing their part, you take the pressure off your pastor to think about how to get you to do something that's good for you. I don't really think about that. I think our church gives. Our church comes to church. And so I, I never, a lot of these pastors get really overwhelmed. Like, how do I get people to come to church? I don't even think about that. People just come. People give. And so now I can think about what God is, is saying and how to say it in a way that you could really receive the truth. And I've really enjoyed this uh, series, Battles and Blessings. And once again, I have an odd chapter, uh, Joshua chapter 7. It feels like the teaching calendar got skipped around the stuff that I was really hyped to preach about. And so um, we're going to jump right into the scripture today. Uh, Joshua chapter seven, because we're going to read the whole thing and hopefully I don't go over. Um, Y'all better pray if you want that not to happen. Um, But Nelson, uh, I think, went over by 15 seconds. And so, um, because I counted and he set a precedence. Now we can all go over. No, I'm the one who goes over all the time. I'm going to preach a message called, it's not you, it's me. Hopefully I don't trigger somebody who's gone through a breakup and heard those words. But mine's much more spiritual. It's not you, it's me. If you have your Bibles, open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 7. I'm actually really excited about this message. We're going to jump right in on verse 1. But Israel violated the instructions about the things set apart for the Lord. We're jumping right into this context in Joshua chapter 6. As you heard last week from that powerful message Paris preached, the walls of Jericho came down. There was a lot of wealth in Jericho, a lot of exciting things that you and I would be excited about. Um, There was, uh, you know, gold and silver. And so what God had asked them, if you have a chance to go check it out in Joshua chapter 6, is he asked them to uh, basically destroy all the good things in the promised land. Like, I want you to imagine God saying, I'm going to bless you with a coffee shop, but don't drink the coffee. I'm going to give you a bank, but burn all the money. It was really a bizarre thing. God wanted them to get rid of all of the good stuff. And I think, and some Bible scholars think, that God wanted them to destroy the things that were gained without him because he wanted to be the one to bless them. And so God had this way, and I don't really know why. We can't, sometimes we try to justify it. Well, maybe this was why, but we don't know. Sometimes God just asks us to do things, and we need to do them because he's God. I think so many times 
I, I try to justify, I want to understand what God's trying to tell me to do, and so I'll pray about it. But sometimes, you know your parent that says, because I said so, some things we need to do just because God says to do them, just because he's God. And so it said, but Israel violated the instructions about the things set apart for the Lord. A man named Achan had stolen some things of the dedicated things, so the Lord was very angry with the Israelites. I'm already confused because it said, so Israel violated, but then it brings up what a man did. What one man did, he attributed to a nation. What one man did when Adam sinned, he attributed to all of humanity. The Bible says by one man, sin came into the world, but also by one man, uh, Jesus, who died for our sins, righteousness, the free gift, came into the world. Salvation came through one man. Sin came through one man. Isn't it interesting the damage that one man can do? I think so many times we've heard these analogies, one bad apple spoils the bunch. And we're like, well, maybe not one bad apple. Why would one bad apple spoil a bunch? But in this situation, one bad apple, God put the sin of a man named Achan on all of Israel. I almost named this message, my Achan breaking heart. Huh? Come on, country fans. You get it? Billy Ray Cyrus? Come on, I thought that would get a louder, maybe in the clap, you're like, that's hilarious. But Achan, whose name means trouble, messed up, and brought something on Israel. I wonder if some of us are facing battles that someone in our circle is doing something and bringing something on to us. I wonder if, let me just see you know this, uh, kids here and watching online, but, but we never talk about spiritually transmitted diseases. Maybe you laid down with an anxious person Oh, just let me be silent. Just let me. Somebody's got a text to send. Don't come over tonight. You know what I'm saying? What are you bringing on yourself by who you're associating with? I think this is really important, and this is scary. And so it says that he was angry with the, Amalite, uh, the, the Israelite. Ankin was the son of Carmi, a descendant of Zimri, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah. Joshua sent some of his men from Jericho to spy out the town of Ai, I always think of Allen Iverson, east of Bethel near Beth Avon. When they returned, they told Joshua, there's no need for all of us to go up there. It won't take more than two or 3,000 men to attack Ai, so there are so few of them. Don't make all of our people struggle to go up there. They're confident, right? So approximately 3,000 warriors were sent, but they were soundly defeated. The men of Ai chased the Israelites from the town gate as far as the quarries, and they killed about 36 who were retreating down the slope. The Israelites were paralyzed with fear at the turn of these events, and their courage melted away. Joshua and the elders of Israel tore their clothing in dismay, threw dust on their heads, and bowed face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord until evening. Then Joshua cried out, O sovereign Lord, why did you bring us across the Jordan River if you're going to let the Amorites kill us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side. Lord, what can I say now that Israel has fled from its enemies? For when the Canaanites and all the other people living in the land hear about it, they will surround us and wipe our name off the face of the earth. And then what will happen to the honor of your great name? But the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why are you lying on your face like this? I just, this is mind-blowing that the Lord stopped the prayer session. The Lord stopped the prayer session. How many of us believe that if revival is going to come to this town, we need to pray? 
Don't we need to pray? I want to advise you to pray. We don't pray enough. We need to pray. We think sometimes revival is sparked by prayer, and oftentimes it is. But he stopped the prayer gathering because he knew revival this time wasn't going to be sparked by prayer. It's going to be sparked by removal. Somebody has got to go for there to be revival in this city. Stop praying and go deal with that one janky, disobedient person that all of you know are disobedient, but you're telling each other and not them. We all know who it is. We all know who it is. And if you think it's me, then I'm giving you permission to get rid of me. No, I'm not. Don't get rid of me. It's not me. But it's like, no, stop praying. Get up. Why are you lying in your face like this? Israel has sinned and broken my covenant. See, he's putting the sin of one person on the community. And they have not only stolen them, but have lied about it and hidden the things among their own belongings. One of the things that you always know when people deep down know that they're making a decision that's not good is they hide it or they lie about it. It says, that is why the Israelites are running from their enemies in defeat. For now Israel itself has been set apart for destruction. I will not remain with you any longer until you destroy the things among you that were set apart for destruction. Get up, command the people to purify themselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, hidden among you, O Israel, are things set apart for the Lord. Whew, that's no joke. I mean, I'm not, I'll never pressure anybody to give, but you better make sure there's nothing in your possession that is supposed to belong to the Lord. You better make sure there's nothing in your Chase account that should belong to the Lord. You better make sure there's nothing in your home that should belong to the Lord. So, so tithing and giving, when I give to the church, I'm not giving out of generosity. I'm giving, making sure that there's nothing that I still have that should belong to God. That's literally what it means. He says, they have things that belong to God. In the morning, you must present yourself by tribes and the Lord will point out the tribe to which the guilty man belongs. That tribe must come forward with his clans and the Lord will point out the guilty clan. Then that clan will then come forward and the Lord will point out the guilty family. Finally, each member of the guilty family must come forward one by one. The one who has stolen what was set apart for destruction will himself be burned with fire along with everything he has for he has broken the covenant of the Lord and has done a terrible thing in Israel. The Bible says that this man, Achan, was brought out before the community, singled out as the one who stole what belonged to the Lord, and they executed him, stoned him, and burned him all up. They did to him what they were supposed to do to the first thing that came in Israel. And so we have here in Joshua chapter 7, which we never really hear about in church, a picture of God's wrath. How many of us want to learn more about God's wrath? Come on. Don't we want to reach people for Jesus? We can't leave out the wrath. We can't talk about wrath. We want to reach people. We want people to come to the Lord. We can't talk about wrath. Because if we talk about wrath, people won't come to church. If we talk about wrath, people won't come to church. But if we don't talk about wrath, people will come to church, but they won't know God. We want to teach kids that God loves them. But as they grow, they don't realize that as they grow, we want them to realize that much more important than God's love is God's holiness. Why? Why does it matter if an unholy person loves you? Because they're not going to follow through with that love that they claim to profess. How many times do we throw that around? Love you, bro. 
How many times have people not followed through that what they said to you? So if you don't understand that God is holy, then you want him to love you the way that you feel loved instead of the way that is love. So I need to know that God is holy. Therefore, God, everything God does is out of his holiness. And so then even his wrath can be loving. You ever had one of your parents get mad at you? My dad's wrath was no joke. But my dad got mad at odd things. He got mad at, like, one time I stuck out my father's car, and my dad sat down with tears in his eyes. Son, do you realize what you could have done to our family had you gotten an accident without a license? The tear just trickled out of his eye. And I felt so bad, because I thought my dad was going to kill me. You know, my, when I knew my dad knew, I thought I was dead. I, like, I was 15 and wrote a will. My dad's going to kill me. I'm dead. But then... <laughs> One time we wasted a whole loaf of bread and my, I've been mad as my dad has ever been. Threw the loaf of bread across the room, he was hot. Because they grew up without food. Like, they didn't grow up without cars, they grew up without food. And so my dad wasting food was just made him mad. And so I'm trying to figure out what made my dad mad and because I love my dad, I'm not trying to do those things. But my dad's anger was wrapped up in his love. This is kind of like, what I'm trying to say, I think we stay away from these things about God's wrath. And my prayer, as I was praying for this message, is that through understanding God's wrath, you can also understand his love. And if you don't know anything about his wrath, you don't know enough about his love. There are three key places that uh, seem to activate, three key things that seem to activate God's wrath in the Old Testament. The misplaced worship and affection towards idols, things that you put before God. The mistreatment of others and self-destructive and willful disobedience. These are the themes throughout the Bible. And so what I'm hoping through, through uh, uh, Joshua chapter seven is to, my best, answer three questions out of these passages. What made God angry is question number one in Joshua chapter seven. The second question I hope to answer is why is human anger not the same as holy anger? And question number three is, how does God's wrath reveal his love? Are you ready to hear about the wrath of God? Put, I'm so excited in the chat. Come on, wrath. We need a worship song about wrath. 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 Because if you, battles and blessings, we're talking about the promises of God. We're talking about the purposes of God. The purposes of God are the promises of God. And if you don't know what you've been saved from, you'll never find out what you've been saved for. I'm going to say that again. If you don't know what you've been saved from, you'll never find out what you've been saved for. In order to know what all this is for, the purposes and the plans and the promises of God, you need to know what you've been saved from. And one of those things is wrath. The wrath of God came on Achan and his whole family, and they died over sin. What we don't realize about the Old Testament is this is just the way it works. Somebody has to die. When there's sin, somebody got to go. Can you imagine? Like you make a mistake, who's going to die? Can you imagine? You go to work and you mess up and you're late. Time to die. Bring a goat. Sacrifice a goat. Something's got to go. The Bible says the wages of sin are death. So it's just the way it is, is you got to go. 
You got to go. And so this was the way it was in the Old Testament and Achan was no different. But why was God mad? God was mad because he had asked Israel as they were going into the promised land to give everything that they found first to God. It's this concept of the first fruits that we're going to talk about in the middle is God was trying to establish this, that your faith is proven in what you put first. So if I send you to the promised land with all this stuff in Jericho, I need you to give it all to me so that I know that it's not about this. It's about me. Think about this. First fruits um, are, are important because God is trying to establish his position in your life so he can establish your position in the promise. His position in your life establishes your position in the promised land. So if he doesn't have first position, you have no position because the very place he puts you will destroy you if he is not first. Let me put it this way. The reason why God was mad, I believe it was possible God was mad because their priorities were destroying their prophecies. I'm gonna leave that on the screen for a minute too. God's a God of order. So God will often give you a prophecy and then reorder your priorities. He'll say, I'm bringing revival to the city. Now serve at home and wash the dishes. Get out of your prayer closet and clean the dish. My wife this morning woke up to a clean kitchen. I've been married 10 years and my wife has woken up to a clean kitchen 10 times. And last night was one of them. Because I'm in the spirit. We always have like big, I'm doing big things. I'm learning to be good at the little things. So God will often go, hey, I need you to reorder your priorities to help me fulfill that prophecy. So he'll give you the prophecy and you think, okay, it's coming. But no, let me reorder some priorities in your life because you have your family here and money here. And and let me actually make sure that I deal with the money because the promises of God always come with provision. Make no mistake about it. David said, I was young, now I'm old and I've never seen the righteous begging for bread. So the promises of God always come with provision. So God will deal with your money. This is what he was doing with Jericho. He's like, oh, Achan's priorities was the gold and the silver, and they needed to be the glory, not the gold. Glory, not the gold. So I got to deal with your priorities to fulfill the prophecies. And so he was upset about this. And think about this in Proverbs 3, 9, where it says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. So God will produce blessings in your life and he wants to see how you honor him, especially at first. Because we always think, man, when I get get a million dollars, man, I'm giving the church, I'm buying a church, 50 new campuses as soon as I win the lottery. And you ain't gave nothing at all with what you have now. Or we tell people we love, yeah, girl, when I, when I get on, man, you don't even, you don't even do, you're not generous to her now. You, money enhances who you are now. So when God wants more of you, he gives you more. Can I, let me tell you something, I'm about to break this down to you. When God wants more of you, he gives you more because abundance always produces more of you. So if you're selfish and God gives you abundance, you'll become more selfish. So if you're generous, God knows his abundance is designed to make 
you'll be more of you. So whatever you are now, abundance gets more. Restriction is what gets out of you what God wants out of you. So God knows abundance will get more of you. So he's down to give you abundance, but he knows that if you're angry, a rich person is even more angry. If you're selfish, a rich person is even more selfish. So he's saying, I need to deal with what you put first. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. He was purging things out of them. And I know we know the promises of God, but isn't this season weird? And I feel like the Lord said, this season is weird because often a purging shows up before the promise. Certain things got to go so certain things can come. Jesus said, there's so many things I want to tell you to religious people, but your hearts have no room for my message. So you have to purge things out of your heart to get the message of the Lord. There's some things we got to get rid of. You ever had a garage sale? I hate garage sales until my wife had one. Then I wanted to be the general manager of the garage sale. Like, I didn't want her to do it, but our garage sale was fire. And I was shocked at how much stuff I had in my house that I did not need, nor did I want. Like, there's something about your stuff sitting on the lawn that makes you a proud neighbor. Just like, I don't need that. I don't need that. And at one point, I wanted to stock the front yard with stuff that I didn't need. And everybody came and bought stuff that I didn't need that's probably going to end up in their garage sale that they don't need. It's the weirdest thing in the world. But what I realized is we were moving to a new place, so we were purging because we were moving. And, and some of us want to move to the next thing that God has for us. We want to move to our destiny. We want to move to the promise. But since we won't purge, we cannot move. There's certain things you got to get rid of. You might not be able to have that best friend for what God has called you to. Can I be real? You want to get married? You might not be able to have that friendship circle. And I would go as far as to say, if that you wouldn't, if they're, the groomsmen are marriage material, maybe they're not either. Are we, are we preaching right now? Are we preaching? Certain things got to be purged before you do that. And so God created this purging of Achan so the community can move forward. This is a painful thing. And I believe that this is why God was mad. God was mad because they didn't put him first. And he gave him the specific instructions. Here's what happens when we find out though that God gets mad, is that we think it gives us permission to be mad. I have righteous anger. No, you don't. You don't have righteous anger. You don't have righteous anger. You're mad. Like, you don't have righteous anger. How many people see things with church? I used to think I have righteous anger. I've been mad at church leaders for about a year. And I went to this conference last week to, to get healed. And I got so convicted. The Lord kicked my butt. Like, literally just told me, what are you doing? Knock it off. You don't have righteous anger. You are judgmental and you are critical. How dare you view one of my sons with anything other than love? No matter what they say. You're not holy enough to carry my anger. I want you to write this down. God would rarely, slash never, make you a better steward of his anger than you are of his grace and patience. He would never. Why are so many of us so good at anger and so bad at grace and patience? God does not need you to be mad at pastors. 
He doesn't need you to be mad at them. He doesn't need you to be mad at Democrats. He doesn't need you to be mad at Republicans. He doesn't need you to be mad at people. You have to be a better steward of his grace and patience than you are of his anger. Why do we give ourselves permission to be mad? At God's sons and daughters. Can you imagine if you came up to me right now and said, I'm so mad at Bailey, but it's righteous anger. If you don't sit down somewhere, don't you talk about my daughter that way? Who gave you the right to be mad at my daughter? I'm her father. If I want to be mad at her, I'll be mad at her, but you don't get to be mad at my kid. God is in heaven saying, you don't get to be mad at my kid. That's my kid. It don't matter who it is. That is my kid. God, I'm going to say it again. God would rarely, never make you a better steward of his anger than you are of his grace and patience. Why are we so good at anger and so bad at grace and so bad at mercy? And this is my fault. I'm like, I have anger in my heart towards the way pastors lead their church through political things. And I was furious. I'm like, I'm never going to this church again. I'm never doing this. I'm unfollowing people and I'm doing all this stuff. And I'm separating myself from people and I'm separating myself into self-righteousness thinking that I'm better. I promise you, everyone in this room, everyone online thinks they're better than someone. Everyone. We think we're better than. So, so the dispensation of grace and patience is the environment for the dispensation of truth. It's how you set the table. You ever go to a fancy restaurant? Right? One thing that's common about fancy restaurants, if they're really good fancy restaurants, is not just the food is good. It's the plating. You ever been to a nice restaurant? When I go to the taqueria by my house, they slop that crap. It's the fire, most fire food ever, but that stuff is slopped on your plate. The, the enchiladas is running into the beans and the rice. You just mix it all together. It's the best thing I've ever eaten in my life, but it ain't plated well. That stuff is fire. But at the fancy restaurant, they're putting stuff on your plate with tweezers. This is how the church is supposed to give the truth. It's you're supposed to plate the truth. Not just toss it out. You can't just slop truth on the church. You plate the truth, which is the food, the meat of God's word, you plate it with grace and patience. The grace and patience presents the presentation for the, oh my God, I am preaching. So God needs his church to be better at grace and patience than they are at anger. Everybody's mad. Everybody's mad. Instagram is a cauldron of anger. We are so mad, so mad. I've, man, last year I was posting so many mad things, I was mad. We post a mad thing in our feed, and then we like hit the triangle so the feed goes in the story. So just in case you don't see the feed, you know I'm mad in the story. You know, the story is a good example of how long we're supposed to stay mad. 24 hours. Bible says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. How I know my anger is unhealthy is how long I'm angry. If I go to sleep with it, that ain't from the Lord. I don't care who you're mad at. God's mercy is new every morning. That means God has never, not only does he not sleep, but if he did sleep, he never wakes up angry. Do you? That's why human anger is never holy anger. 
Listen to this, Ephesians 4, verse 31, for all of you righteous anger people. Get rid of all bitterness, all rage. I'm trying to overpronounce it. All anger, all harsh words and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. So your rage, your anger, and your harsh words are evil. It's evil. Here's what I've discovered through therapy and the word of God. God's wrath is rooted in divine love, but our wrath is often rooted in past trauma. That is not supposed to be there, but they'll fix it in post. God's wrath is rooted in divine love, but our wrath is often rooted in past trauma. So we're, God is angry because he loves you. You're angry because you're angry. You're, can I just put it this way? This is going to even make um, more sense. What I'm trying to say is, is human anger is often because of our passion for our expectations of humanity, not our passion for humanity itself. Wow. A human anger is often because of our passion for our expectations of humanity, not our passion for humanity itself. So we are passionate about other people doing the right thing that honestly we often fail to do. That's human anger. And God says you got to get rid of it. I was, uh, when I used to go to church when I was a kid, um, a lot of preachers would do the offering. And they would say at the end of the offering, uh, give, and it'll be given unto you. Press down, shaken together where there ain't room enough. Anybody believe that for your life? But that verse in the Bible has nothing to do with the offering. I want to read the original context for that verse. Luke 6, verse 37. Remember, trying to answer the question, why is human anger not the same as holy anger? Watch this. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it'll be given unto you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap for with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So that verse isn't, doesn't mean the context was not when you give an offering, God will give back to you. The context is when you give judgment and anger, that's what God will give to you. Press down, shaken together, running over. What you get when you do something wrong is determined on what someone else gets when they do something wrong. If they get mercy from you, you get mercy from God. If they get grace from you, you get grace from God. If they get patience from you, you get patience from God. If they get wrath from you, they, you get wrath from God. So what you give, I give to you. I want you to understand this concept that God is watching what you give to people when you're mad so he can determine what he gives to you when he's mad. That person that just made you mad, this is God as you cuss that person out in the car. God's like, oh, word? That's what we're doing? That's how he talks to me. <laughs> oh, for real? Much as I've forgiven you of, oh, for real? That's how he... You're going to be mad at that? You've done worse to me says the Lord, than they've ever done to you. And you don't want my anger, so don't give it. Every time you respond to what someone does with wrath or anger, you are deciding that's what you want God to do when you mess up. And not just what you gave. Press down, shaking together where there ain't room enough to carry the wrath that you gave to other people. This is why human anger is not the same as holy anger. The third question 
that we must deal with is how does God's wrath reveal his love? I always know that someone has an immature theology when they believe God's love has no boundaries. You don't have to do anything, just be whoever you want. Doesn't matter what your sexuality is, doesn't matter, God's love. God's love, so do whatever you want. When true love has boundaries. My relationship is filled with love and filled with boundaries. When I was single, I came home whenever I wanted to. I haven't been home after midnight since I don't know when. When I was a young single person, yeah, I was gonna stay out and hang and play PlayStation with the boys. You imagine my wife calling me at 1 a.m., where are you at? Just playing PlayStation with the boys. Like, my relationship has so many boundaries. Where there's love, there's boundaries. We all say, but it's not religion, it's relationship. Relationship has a lot of rules and a lot of religion. You don't get to do whatever you want in a relationship. It doesn't matter that I don't want to wash dishes. My wife likes clean dishes, so I wash dishes. It's that simple. So what I'm saying to you is, is that God's wrath and God understanding, and when we're talking to our kids, we want kids to understand that God loves them. That's what we want God to understand. But when you get older, we have to understand that the character of God is much more complex than God just loves you, do whatever you want. You have not encountered that love if you're doing whatever you want. You, you can't. And by the way, one of the ways that God displays his wrath, if you read Romans 1, I don't have time to, I almost did, but I'm already about to go over, so I deleted Romans 1. But one of the ways that God gives people his wrath is letting them do whatever they want. It says, so he left them to themselves to fulfill all of their evil desires and all the ways that they wanted to be with people. If you wanted to be with this person, you can be with them. Go ahead, do you. One of the ways God shows you that you're under wrath is letting you do you. One of the worst things I could ever tell you as a leader is, do you? Oh Lord, please don't let me do me. When God doesn't try to stop you from doing what you're doing, that's more wrath than when he tries to stop you. Think about the prodigal son who left. Hey, I want all my money, dad. I want to spend it on wild living. Father went to his wallet. That's scary. When God lets you do you, we live in a world where we want to do what we want. We call it love. Love is whoever you say you are. This is, this is love. Let me tell you the definition of biblical love. We have to understand this because I believe that we don't know what love means. When we read the word in the Bible, it's not a feeling. It's not an emotion. It's Love is not who you're attracted to. That's your attractions. And no matter who you're attracted to, that doesn't make it love. This is the biblical definition of love. Are you, are you, please write this down. Biblical love involves embracing God's will cheerfully, choosing his choices. This is literally from the Greek word. I'm, this is not me. This is the breakdown of the Greek word. Embracing God's will cheerfully, choosing his choices, doing what God prefers. This love is divined by God and creates choices that align with what God wants through the faith and power he provides. It means to live your life in love, to live your life through Christ, actively doing what he wants as always defined by God. It's an affection which always involves your choices and your selections. So God can tell that you love him by what you do. And if you're doing the opposite of God's word, then God says, that's not love. It's just not. 
There's a world's version of love and then there's God's version of love. And I'm not here to tell you that your version of love, but it's not the same. It's not the same. It's not the same. Listen to this. And this is so important that we understand this because I'm getting ready to break this down to you. Because God's wrath is his righteous anger. And, 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 and watch this. God is never mad. Uh, let, me just, let me not say that yet. I'm gonna say Hebrews 12, six. It says, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Chastens. We don't use that word. I wish as a leader I could chasten some people. All in the name of love. You know what the word chasten means? A child under development, strict training so that they mature and realize their full potential. This requires necessary discipline, which includes administering chastisement or punishment. So I'm doing this because I love you because I want you to reach your full potential. Not because I no longer want to be irritated by what you're doing. I want you to reach your full potential, so I have to do something that feels like punishment or chastisement so that you reach your full potential. The motivation is God's wrath is not an emotion, it's a tool to get you to where he wants you to go. It's not an emotion for him, it's a tool. You didn't make God mad. Wrath is encompassed within his holiness and his love, and he doesn't want to use it, but he will if he has to, to show you that he loves you. God says, this hurts me more than it hurts you. You have to understand that. That wrath is a tool to get you to where God has for you. And it's a tool that he doesn't want to use. My old mentor told me this. God loves to use feathers, but he'll use bricks if he has to. He's willing to do anything to get you into position. So do you want the brick or do you want the, the feather? But wrath is a tool for God to position you to raise you up to your full potential. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. He administers punishment to. And scourges every son he receives. Have you ever been scourged? You ever been scourged? This is painful. I mean, I've stepped on a Lego barefoot in the middle of the night. I would imagine it's somewhere in that family. But have you, scourging is a metal whip that rips the flesh out of your back. He chastens who he loves, he scourges who he's received. So if you feel like you're in a season where you're being chastised and scourged, it's because you're received and loved by God? Where do we teach that in our culture? Where do we teach that? He says, if I don't do that to you, that means you're not mine. I don't, I'm letting you do you. David had this question in Psalm 37. Why do the wicked perish? He says, oh, they're going to fade away like grass. I'm holding you to a higher accountability because you have a higher calling. You want to know what scourge means? To flog a victim. Figuratively, this is from the Greek word, God sending severe pain in the best eternal interest of the believer. What? God sending severe pain in the best interest for the eternity of the believer. So you're thinking about now and God's always thinking about forever. That's why we never agree for God because we think about now and God's thinking about forever. Uh, we're not thinking about eternal. We're thinking about the present, the temporary. God, I need this job. God, I need this promotion. So do it. God's like, no, but in heaven, you're going to understand why I did what I did. I love you. So we got to do this. 
It's biblical punishment, and it's all based on love. It says that God authorized earthly pain bringing heavenly gain. He authorized it in Job's life. This isn't encouraging. I'm not encouraged. I'm like, Lord, you want me to preach on Joshua chapter seven? I'm not encouraged. I'm supposed to talk talk to people about the wrath of God and the Lord said, said this simple thing. It's not you, it's me. Like, what does that mean? He said, do you know that every single time someone sinned in the Bible, something or someone had to die? Every single time. And nothing's changed. Someone has to die because there's sin. But it's not you. It's me. So the difference is, in Joshua chapter 7, it was Achan. But the gospel is Jesus. Jesus took Achan's place. Here's the reality. In the story of God, we're never Jesus. We're all Achan. And we all deserve a stoning. I want you to understand all the sins that you committed in your life. God stands before you with his wrath and he says, someone has to die. But it's not you. It's me. Can you imagine you being convicted and getting life and getting the death penalty for a crime and the judge standing up and saying, someone needs to die for this crime. The death penalty is valid for this crime, but it's not you, it's me. That's what Jesus said. Oh, somebody has to die, but it's not you. It's me. You will never understand the love of God until you understand that that cross belonged to you not Jesus. He took your cross and your sin and your scourging and your punishment and your stoning. He took what they did to Achan on himself so then what would happen to Achan would never have to happen to you but you would understand that what happened to Achan deserves to happen to you but you got love instead of wrath and you will never feel loved by God if you don't know you got it instead of wrath. His love was instead. Um, Julian, don't cry. Okay, here we go. Prior to Jesus, Isaiah 51 verse 17 says this. Wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. So prior to Jesus, when you messed up, you drank from the cup of God's wrath. And then as Isaiah probably had one of the most profound prophetic glimpses of what Jesus would do, he starts to change the tone five verses later and says, this is what your sovereign Lord says, your God who defends his people. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never drink again. Some years later, hundreds of years later, as if you look this up in the Old Testament, when they talked about the cup, it was either the cup of blessing or the cup of wrath, and you got to choose. Luke 22, verse 42, Jesus, as he's praying in the garden, getting ready to go to the cross, he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Well, what cup was that? It was the cup of wrath. 
that God said in Isaiah 51, you got to stop drinking. But it didn't mean that somebody wasn't going to drink it. So the reason why you don't have to drink the cup of wrath, the reason why I don't have to drink a cup of wrath, because Jesus drank it and Jesus knew how bad it was. He said, Lord, take it from me. And God said, I can't take it from you. I took it from people and gave it to you. So what happens is Jesus became our sin. And if you don't understand this, you won't ever understand how much love is on the cross. Jesus drinking the cup of wrath that belonged to you and I. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. And um, as I was processing this scripture, I realized something about God. Is that um, Jesus was on the cross and he said, God, why have you forsaken me? You ever... Notice that Jesus said that? God, you left me. You left me. And he wasn't venting. God had left him. And now he's here with you because in that moment he left Jesus. Because God in his holiness cannot partake in sin. So he had to remove sin from you by giving the sin and the wrath to Jesus. He cannot not have wrath. He can't take wrath out of his character. So he gave it to Jesus. And what's weird about that is that that wrath was eternal. So he says he, Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. That means blood poured out of Jesus. For the things that we do, transgress means that they, the actions come out of you. So blood came out of Jesus. Then it says he was bruised for our iniquities. What is an iniquity? It's the things in you that you have yet to do. So God made sure that Jesus was both pierced and bruised. The stabbing in the side wasn't enough because if he only stabbed him in the side, then I would only be forgiven for the things that I did outwardly. So God had to make sure Jesus was bruised, blood outwardly. What is bruised? Blood under the skin. So Jesus bled under the skin. He bled internally for the things that are in you that you have yet to do. So you're forgiven for what you do and you're forgiven for what you're going to do. The wrath of God was on Jesus. The wrath of God. And God used people as the instrument of his wrath to Jesus. People killed him. People killed him. The people he had came to save killed him. And Jesus, with the wrath of God on him, the sin of humanity on him, says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. He literally used his last prayer request to God to go, hey, even these people, just in case they weren't included, even these people who are doing this to me, I want them to be forgiven too. And later, Peter would preach his first sermon to the people who killed Jesus in Acts chapter 2. We love to talk about the attendance in Acts chapter 2, but we never talk about the message. We love to talk about the 3,000 in church. We believe in God for 3,000, just like Acts chapter 2. 
But Peter stood up and said that that Christ whom you crucified, that was the Messiah. He preached the gospel message to Jesus' murderers. Imagine the gospel message, how it can save you if it saved his killers. They said, what should we do? We killed Jesus. We didn't know this was Messiah. He said, repent, be baptized, and you and your sons will receive the Holy Spirit. And we think we can't be forgiven, and we think there's no grace. The first church service, the second church service, that was the first one. The second church service was filled with people who loved Jesus and people who had killed him, and it was welcome to church. You're all forgiven. And nobody's sin was greater than the other. Can you imagine you sitting next to the person who killed Jesus? Like, this guy. I saw you. You put the nail in his hand. Can you imagine that guy sitting in church? Hearing that Jesus loves him, and he might have been the one that hammered the nail in his hand. He's hearing the gospel. And a freaking week ago, he's hammering a nail into it. He's hearing the gospel. The message that comes out of your mouth for the people who hurt you the most, that lets me know you really know the Lord. Father, I thank you so much for who you are. And the messages coming out of our mouths are filled with wrath and anger. And I believe prophetically you're saying that the message that comes out of our mouth for the people who hurt us the most, just like Peter, You killed Jesus, but you're saved. There's love, there's grace for you. I believe it's gonna move our church forward and there are people living in anger and wrath towards politicians, towards white people, towards black people, towards people who think differently like them. And God, you are freeing them right now in this moment to live in your grace and patience and your love. The wrath belonged to Jesus so we could have the righteousness that belonged to you. So Father, we release this word into the hearts of the people. In Jesus' name, amen.